Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready? I, I love situations. You love situations. We're often saying that of you. You are the mm. situation meister. That is right? my second nickname of after Rugby League Squidge. Yeah. You are Andy Gomasol. Okay? Am I? For the sake of this situation, you are Andy Gomasol. Okay, hang on. Let me just okay. get the character. <clears throat> Sonny Bill! Sonny Bill Williams. Sonny Bill Williams, what man. a great player. He really just works. You and are. I, I bet you all the money in the world that he is a good offloader. You are Andy Gomasol, right? I am Andy Gomasol. You are also Alex Mitchell. You okay. are also Richard Wigglesworth. <laughs> okay, yeah. You yeah. are also Richard Hill, the scrum half, not the flanker. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're saying. You are a decidedly pretty average or no slightly above average like a six out of ten international player who finds themselves in inexplicably the starting jersey for a massive world cup knockout game what do you do i carry on talking about sonny boo williams and spending all the money in the world and then regaining it because i somehow still have all the money in the world and i carry on looking like a man made of plasticine I mean, that's a very good start. It's a very good start. All being the most despicable man in the world, Richard Hill, who is just everything everyone hates about English rugby, rolled into one estate agent. But you find yourself in this one knockout game, right? Do you inexplicably become a good game-controlling scrum half? (laughs) You raise a valid point. Because, look, the game today, welcome to the World Cup retrospective, whatever, is Australia's... Quarterfinal, what they expect to be Australia's astounding win over England in the quarterfinals. England won 12 points to 10. And the thing this put me really in mind of was I think Andy Gomesov, right, who's been pretty ropey this entire tournament and is remembered as a perfectly okay player. Yeah. I thought he had a fantastic game. Oh, God, I feel so and, uncomfortable agreeing with you. Yeah. The thing is, I then thought about the the knockouts in the World Cup this year, right? And Alex Mitchell, I think, is a brilliant Premiership player, and I think he always looked a bit dodgy in a test shirt. Agreed. Then the World Cup knockouts came around, and suddenly he was excellent. He looked great. Suddenly in he was knockouts. fantastic. Like that game against South Africa, the biggest game of his life was the best game I've ever seen him play by like yeah. a long, long stretch. And I've seen him play well since then. Like in this first couple of rounds yeah. of the Six Nations, he's been good. Weirdly, in the European Cup for Northampton, he's been playing really well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's most just... fantastic. Yeah, it's not just like mid-table premiership games he's dominating anymore. Yeah. Like, suddenly he's looking like an actual like competent scrum half who isn't just a fast lad who can whip a ball away. 
You know, he's actually got good. off him. Yeah. yeah. You put him up against Worcester or Newcastle and he's a world beater. Yeah. You put him against Scotland or Ireland and suddenly he's passable. Yeah. Um, he's not a player that raises his game with the standard, with the level, you know. Andy Golmasol, likewise, was all right. But then there's there's this trend I've started to realise, right? And there's another trend we'll get onto with England and World Cups. But England scrum halves always seem to come good in World Cup knockouts, like it's what they're born to do. I'm just especially fascinated the by this. looking ones. Especially, especially if they look like Ardman characters. Yeah. yeah. Funny how none of those players played for Bristol, the home of Ardman. That's true. But hey, and you know, you walk around Bristol and like it's just full of like walls and grommets everywhere. For anyone who's never been to Bristol, like they just have like benches which are like grommets on them, and they have like these massive grommets up all over. As in not like the ear thing, like the the dog. But you know who I'm glad I've not seen around Bristol before? Who are you glad you've not seen around Bristol before? Andy Gomesot, no. Yeah. Feathers McGraw. That Indeed. shit cunt. So, we're here to talk about England's win over Australia at the Stab Velodrome in Marseille, which looks very different to how yes. it is now. Yeah, it seems like they've extended it massively since then. Yeah, and built a There's roof. There's another couple of tiers. Yeah, and a roof. Glorious stadium though, like it looks fantastic. And then you go and visit it for the quarterfinals last year, and it's the biggest shithole you've ever been to in your life, Marseille. I hate that town more than anywhere I've ever been in the world. It was a lovely stadium, lovely stadium. They have put one of the best stadiums in the world in one of the worst places on earth, and I admire their cahoots. And when you look at like the overhead camera, right on Marseille around the stadium, that surrounding area is beautiful. But the rest mm. of Marseille is the shittest place. It's French Birmingham, but times a thousand. It's dreadful. You find odd people who really loved it there, and you can tell they are properly posh wankers who were spending endless amounts of money to stay in one of the free nice hotels. Because there's a few like yeah, nice hotel complexes. Yeah, around the stadium. There's a there's a bay that is itself nice, and you walk for literally one minute past it, and it's a shithole again. Yeah. We saw the Rugby World Cup there. Like, mm-hmm. we stood close to it. They had it in the shop. They had oh, it yeah. in the World Cup shop there. And they had Marseille. a helicopter flying over it just in case anyone nicked the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. And, like, a guy standing there going, it is the World Cup in Fr- he's French. What a weird time that was, that week in Marseille. That was one yeah. of the most weird, the, um, miserable... The door on the apartment we were staying in didn't shut. Yeah. Like, and there wasn't... We thought we were we going to get murdered. lock the front door, so we were, like, leaving... Every night when we went to bed, leaving chairs and everything propped against the door because it was the dodgiest area in the dodgiest town. I you've was ever sleeping been to. in the room that you would walk in through, yeah, a very faltering door. I was completely certain that we were going to get murdered when we walked around the corner to go to the shop. Yeah, like constantly, it was like I'm getting stabbed here. Well, like the first day when we went to go to the shop, right? We have to walk through this little like square area. And there was just like a kid with a bow and arrow firing. Oh my at god! The walls. Yeah, it was a fire pit with like children chanting around it. <laughs> it was horrible. There's just broken glass all over. You get and the people job and playing like very loud up. French trap music around, like yeah. all around the place. It's like uniquely horrible. There were literally people with like vodka pouring it on the fire to see if it got close to burning a child's <laughs> face. I'm not even exaggerating. It's the worst place I've ever been in my life. I remember on the last day there, because like, we spent that whole time just lamenting it and just like hating every single second of it. But I remember on the last day, say it, it, you said to me, like, would you ever come back to 
Marseille. Like, yeah. if Wales got into a World Cup final that's been played in Marseille or whatever, and I was like, yeah, I think if Wales played in the World Cup final in Marseille, or if Bruce Springsteen came and played here, I would come back. And then Bruce Springsteen announced his tour and Marseille was on there. I was like, fuck that. <laughs> not going there. <laughs> no way. So I think I've just manifested Wales making a World Cup final that's going to be held in Marseille. Okay, I've had the same thought about, like, if the Ospreys reached a final in Marseille or something. I think it would have to be like the. I wouldn't go for the Challenge Cup final. No. <laughs> Champions Cup final. I think about it. Sure. I think about if I can get in and out in a day. I don't yeah. need to stay overnight. Twenty four hour round to, trip. Yeah. I spoke to someone else after I got home who'd stayed in Marseille, and like they had to sleep on a bench because the keys weren't in the lockbox when they arrived at their Airbnb. Jesus. And like everyone I know who went to Marseille had a horror story there. Apart from as I say, the old you know. The odd person who had the thought it was the loveliest place they ever went. God, I hated Marseille more than I can possibly, possibly express. So we'll set the scene for where this is being played, right? Yes. But one thing I need to quickly establish, right? So you've established that I am part-time Andy Gomesol. Yes. Um, and I want to just quickly double-check. Alex Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm a scrum half who lives in England. That's all you need to That's know about true. me. That's true. Yeah. I want to just double-check, um, who might you be? Oh, I'm Rob, your squidge, whatever you want to call me. Um, Excellent. Are we all well? Yeah, I mean, Good. other than memories of Marseille, which yeah, are very God, traumatic. Get rid of them. Just chuck them out your head. I want to, like, eternal sunshine my memories of Marseille out my brain. Just want to just get rid of them. But, like, I won't keep running into Marseille on a train and falling in love with it. <laughs> Thankfully, I'll just get out of Marseille on a train. One of the best moments of my life when I got to get on the train out of that bloody city. The fly oh, out of I there. flew away from there. Yeah. It was Glorious. great. No, I got like a seven-hour train to Claremont. I was just glad to be out there. Claremont's lovely. I liked Claremont. Claremont yeah, I bet. But I flew back home to... Not... No, I actually had to fly to London, which still yeah, isn't great. It's but... fine. Yeah. Um, anyway. So, this... The first quarterfinal between Australia and England. A game that I think is reasonably fondly remembered in England as a kind of one of the few times England was a real underdog in a World Cup, and it all came good. In Australia, it's remembered as a game to forget. Yeah. This is simultaneously, like, this is one of the most cagey games I've ever seen. It's two teams who are so reluctant to screw up, so reluctant to play into each other's hands. And yet, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really great that it was like a parody of a really of a nervy game you know yeah you turn it up to 100 all 30 players want this so much and you can there's a lot of errors sure but again like most of them are forced by each other or just by the sheer occasion and again the yeah. atmosphere in the stadium is great both sets of fans are again very nervous it's the biggest game of any of these players lives other than the ones who played in the book at final four years ago which was this same fixture so that was a big part of the narrative going into it yeah yeah, repeat at the final from four years ago, which had been an upset at the time. Australia would, you know, expect to win that. They're at yeah, home. Yeah, at home. Yeah. And then England turned up and they take them to extra time. And then Johnny Wilkinson kicks a drop goal in the dying moments of that game. One of the most iconic rugby moments of all time, probably up there with Jonah Lomu running over Mike Cat, who plays at 12 in this game. Paul Saki, who's on the wing for England, said this was his favourite game he ever played in. Okay. The stadium, the atmosphere, our passion of fight. Everybody thought we were going to lose that game, but everybody thought we were going to lose every game. We dominated yeah. the drumming in every aspect. We were physical, clinical, and we just wanted it more. I mean, fair enough. But it's, so as people who have watched back 
every game of this campaign, hmm. right? I want to kind of like set the scene of just how much I guess things were meant to be going in Australia's favour, right? Yeah. So I want to just quickly read out a review that was left on the podcast saying, could be a great pod if it wasn't for the constant childish hating on the England team. Bitter. That is from Dan Bronx, left in October 2023. And it made me think... Are we hating on the England team so much or have they just been dog shit so far in this Rugby World Cup? And I think it's very much the latter, but also they're excellent in this game. Yeah, I think they look like a average team playing above themselves, Mm -hmm. but then they've been a much less than average team over this tournament. It's quite hard to express just how poor they've been, both put against the standard of the other competition of the other teams in this tournament, but also when you put them against modern rugby, they're unbelievably atrocious. Yeah. Like if you drop this England team into like modern rugby, you're looking at them. They wouldn't make the championship, you know, like they are kind of a semi-professional standard team at best. Yeah. Um, And again, that's no shade against them. That's just about how far rugby's come since then. With a few exceptions, like, you know, if if this England team were championship side, right, which they kind of are in quality, Johnny Mm. Wilkinson would be picked up immediately and keep climbing all the way up because he's exceptional. And he kind of keeps his team flooding. When flooding, Toby, whatever, when they have your friend of mine, the man of the basement. Yes, Ollie Barkley. Ollie Barkley at 10. When he isn't bloody listening to trap in his garage, they look atrocious. Yeah. When Barclays at 10, they've been genuinely dog shit. And there's this thing where, like, I think a lot of people assume that, you know, there's a level of bias or whatever being Welsh fans. I don't feel any of that, at least anymore, because I've been doing, you know, I've been covering rugby as a job for six years now. And it's amazing what that does, what having to cover everything objectively does for like actually leveling you out and making you feel objective about things like i learned very early into watching rugby that if you're biased about something if you're expressing an opinion that is biased that Mm. doesn't actually change anyone's performance on the pitch so it's pointless yeah yeah and it's the thing of like yes there's we've said this before but like occasionally there's other bias but like the bias is i'll notice if aaron wainwright makes 26 ruck entries I'm more likely to because I'm paying more attention. I'm paying a closer attention to Wales and to the teams he plays for. Yeah, you appreciate your own team's players better. You you just do, no matter what. It's the same in any sport. It's the same in any brand, any area in the world. Because if you're watching a game as neutral, right, you're watching both teams equally. If you're watching your team play, you're only watching your team, whether on attack or defence, or primarily you're only watching your team, you know? Yeah. So they're getting like 70% of your attention. The other team's getting 30, even if what the other team's doing is more interesting. So for instance, we watched the 1987 Wales team and they were dreadful. They were so, so bad. They, yeah, they were relative to everything in terms of teams that overperform. They were drastically worse than this England team. Yes, absolutely agreed. And you compare that to the Australia team that they have again, before we get into the actual players playing and stuff, this Australia team were. I guess, world-class in a really unserious way, if that makes yeah. sense. They were scoring 90 points against the teams that they were meant to be beating, whereas England were kind of scraping by against the likes of Tonga in the USA. Australia were battering Japan, battering Wales. They were really like cruising through the pool stages, but in a really attractive way. You know, yeah. it's much easier to look at a team playing like that and say that they're playing well than one that scrapes by. And that's just the nature of how we are conditioned as rugby fans to appreciate teams and how they're playing. Yeah. It's the thing that's often 
led to teams like you know New Zealand, Ireland at the minute, France in the last few years being higher rated than what we've seen in the past, England and Wales teams um, and South Africa teams who win every game and win as many games as those other sides, but they win them by smaller margins because of their style of play, because their style of play is not more negative, because I hate that being something being positive or negative as whatever, but you know, they are perhaps a lower scoring team. It's just the style. It's the way they play. They they grind teams down. More risk averse. Yeah. They grind teams down rather than playing this endless attacking rugby. And people will say that the team that you know scores more tries is more important than the team that wins more games. And actually, I think there's a there's something in this England team, right? Yes, they've been atrocious, but they've won all their games but one. Where they were absolutely battered, but that's a whole other thing. Where this Australia team hasn't been in that habit. They haven't had to win a close game over this World Cup. If you look at the year coming into this, right, Australia in two games over the full year before this quarterfinal that finished by within seven points or less. Wow. Well, you know, that was decided. One, they won against the All Blacks, 20 points to 15, and one they lost against the Springboks, 22 points to 19. Okay. So one win, one loss from those situations, both of them higher scoring games than this. Both of them okay. in that sort of twenties realm where they were scoring multiple tries and able to get in there. Otherwise, you look over the year coming into this, right? And it's like there's a 49 win over Fiji. There's a 31 nil win over Wales. There's a 44 15 win at Murrayfield. Like they are consistently winning games. Uh, they had a draw with Wales like 18 months beforehand, but otherwise, like all their games are either blowouts or significant losses against the All Blacks. They're actually no, no, no. They've got a few close games against the All Blacks in this time. Then they've got like a thirty-two twelve loss the year before. But like they beat the Springboks forty-nine nil in wow. two thousand six. Like it's incredible the the way this team when they click, how good they are. Yeah, yeah. Another thing which I think can be construed as both a good and a bad thing mm. is at 10 they select Beric Barnes yes who is at this stage on maybe his fourth cap I believe made, yeah. his, made his debut against Japan in the first game of the group stages and at this stage he has not yet been challenged in Australia jersey no. he has not yet played in a game that re- requires any sort of management he's played extremely well he's mm. guided them to high score lines which is a great thing so I suppose maybe it's a good thing to put in a lad who's high on confidence and only knows how to win by margins. But on the other hand, when his opposite number is Johnny Wilkinson, who will grind you down, keep you on the floor and force you to play a game of rugby. Is that the guy you want in there? I don't know. And I'm not saying that Barry Barnes played badly at all, because I don't think he did. But at the same time, you know, if you've got someone like Stephen Larkin to maybe bring off the bench for him, yeah, then maybe it's Julian a different Huxley. scenario. Instead, they leave on Julian Huxley as an unused substitute. Also, talking of unused substitutes in Rugby World Cup knockout games, Dan Hipkiss is an unused yes. substitute for England. <laughs> well, the day we should probably look at the team, shouldn't we? Yes. So, Australia. Let's look at Australia first, because you mentioned yeah. Beric Barnes, which is the big headline, I think, the fact that he starts this game, which seemed like the safe bet at the time, but as you say, it was a, it's a gamble that perhaps wasn't appreciated the week of this game, because he was okay. in such great form coming in. But Chris Latham continues in the fullback. It's a really strong team. Sterling Mortlock is. It's a really experienced backline, is the thing. Yeah. You've got Mortlock and Gitto in the centres. You've got Gregan at nine. And yeah. it's easy to go. They've got an inexperienced 10. But is there a nine in the history of rugby who would you rather, who you'd rather have, like hold his hand through this? Yeah. Probably well, not. This was his 139th and final cap. The most capped player of all time at the time. Yeah. And what a World Cup he was having still. Yeah. 
unbelievable. And, you know, still stands as the most capped scrum half of all time, ahead of yeah. Ben Young's in second place. Then, yeah, Beric Barnes continues at 10. You've got Lottie Decure and Adamassi Cooper on the wings, who are both fantastic players and in great form. Drew Mitchell's left on the bench, despite some really good form in the knockout in the group stages. Then the, the pack is perhaps the interesting one, right? Because England's pack is a bunch of niggly bastards. Yeah. And Australia's pack are ballers. Golden Coast ballers across the board. To kind of cross the two over, England's pack, they clearly prioritise weight and power yeah. rather than, yeah, ball skills. For instance, on the loose head side, you've got Phil Vickery versus Matt Dunning. Extremely yeah. different styles of prop. Matt Dunning is technically a very good scrummager, but gives away a couple of pounds to Phil Vickery, who mm. scrummaging and just brutality is his kind of niche, his thing. Um, yeah, Phil Vickery could drop goal. Yeah, exactly that. Especially not by accident. Again, like Simon Shaw and Ben Kay. <laughs> Though Matt Dunning couldn't win MasterChef. So That's also true. You've got talents all over. Yeah, Simon Shaw and Ben Kay, both brutal locks, like great in the line out, will smash any breakdown, whatever. Nathan Sharp and Dan Vickerman are more sort of like rangy technical locks, you know, who mm. will do something good for you in the loose. So yeah, extreme contrast in those two packs. Yeah. I mean, so the guy Shepherdson is a tight head, who is one of these players I've seen playing this tournament and completely forgot over the time we were, we yeah. were off. Just no memory of him whatsoever. Kind of one of the the surprise inclusions had made the squad the year beforehand, basically played until this World Cup, had like one year in the Australia squad and managed to be first choice for a World Cup. Mad. Could have won a World Cup, you know, things have gone differently. <laughs> Stephen Moore, speaking people a kick. Oh boy, do we get onto that. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, Rocky Elsom, George Smith and Wycliffe Parlow is an incredible back row, but it's very, very different to the England back row, which is Nick Easter, Lewis Moody and Martin Corrie. All three of those players are bastards all yeah. three of the england back row are pricks on the field who you hate to play against all three of the australian back row are players you love to watch that's and it a big difference between those two if i were to if you showed me in isolation those th- two back rows and asked me which one i thought was better i would yeah. definitely say the australian one every time yeah but that's probably because rocky elson scores loads of tries like yep. he's been criticized as it as we've talked about in previous episodes of this as being lazy but he just pops up on the edge and scores tries and you know what he's bloody good at it is the thing mm. george smith is one of the best open sides to ever play the game yep. um eddie jones obviously said he looks like he's covered in spiders because no one wants to tackle him he's that guy incredible at the breakdown and you know cliffy palu great ball carrier really good just solid what you want from a number eight right does that job very well as I say, maybe I'd say that that's a better back row, but is it the back row that played better in this game? I don't think it is. You've got I don't England think it is for a, minute, no. a back row, as you say, of three pure bastards who carry the ball well, don't do anything fancy, just stick it up the jumper and move forward, which is all England needed to do in this game. Yeah. I mean, at one point, the commentator brings up the remarkable stat. Nick Easter, four tries in his test career, all in the same game. <laughs> and we all know who that was against. Yep. Wales. Uh- but Lewis Moody is in full-on niggly mode. You know that thing he did? Like, I guess younger listeners didn't watch Lewis Moody play. He was a really interesting player because he sort of doesn't exist anymore. There isn't like a Lewis Moody type player anymore. The closest we've probably got is Justin Tipperick, who's still going. I'm sure there are more. But those players who just kind of like seem to slip into gaps in rucks and are just sort of there and like he's really lightweight for an international seven but has the energy is right. And it's not Martin Williams who's great at cheating. He just throws himself everywhere and he puts his body on the line constantly. And I don't know if there is an analogy at the minute for a player like Lewis Moody, 
who just like puts their body about everywhere. Maybe like Fraser McWright. It's maybe the closest maybe. I can think of. Fraser McWright's more of a ball player, though. Yeah, he is. Where... But I suppose everyone is nowadays. Yeah, it's it's all got to be relative. But Lewis Moody was a a fantastic player. I think he played yeah. really well in this game on sheer mentality. And I know that we discussed earlier in the podcast that this wasn't always a good thing. That it yeah. led to several concussion issues and injury issues later in his life. But he's brilliant when he played for England. Like. There's something about whenever we watch games of this podcast, somebody who clearly loves playing for his country as much as he does is yeah. always something that's a joy to watch. Yeah, absolutely. The England backline, though, yeah, is weird because it feels picked by a different guy to who picked the pack. Yeah, it does. So, no, I think one to ten because you've got Gomasol and Wilkinson as your halfbacks. And this is Turbo Gomasol. Great. Yeah, Turbo Gomasol, sorry. Yeah, Turbo Gomasol and Johnny Wilkinson as your halfbacks, right? (laughs) But then the outside backs beyond that, you've got Josh Lucy, Mike Catt, Matthew Tate, Paul Sackey and Jason Robinson. An injured Jason Robinson at that. Yeah, he's still electric. Yeah, unbelievably good in this game. But... Yeah, he's he's injured. Like they thought that he'd broken his leg or something like yeah. three weeks before, and he was just like, "Don't worry, I'm still better than." Who would have been the next choice? I guess at this point, I can't really remember. Mark Cueto. Mark Cueto. Yeah. yeah, they'd have found some bullshit to go and sit at the back. It would have been yeah. some guy that's played like four games for London Irish, who they can call on. No, he's played like 168 games for Worcester, and has been like a good servant. Who Brian Ashton will call on and go, "It's your time, my son." Yeah, so Jason Robinson goes in over 15-year-old Chris Pennell, is what you're saying. Yes. And again, these players didn't play badly or anything, mm. but it's so weird looking at a World Cup quarterfinal team sheet that has Mike Cat, Matthew Tate, and Paul Sackey as a, tr- a consecutive trio on there. It's very strange to look at, but again, I suppose we'll get into how all three of those guys played. Yeah, because we should probably move in the general direction of the game itself. So obviously the thing that looms over this was the World Cup final from four years previous, one of the most iconic and most famous rugby matches of all time. Maybe in terms of rugby as a kind of pop culture moment, might be the pinnacle of it in the UK. Yeah. In British rugby circles, it is the most talked about, most remembered game of all time. Yeah. Um, For a lot of people, certainly sort of 30 and up, if you ask them about a rugby match, that's the first one that comes to mind. They'll say Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal. Yeah, that's the first memory that comes to mind for most people. There was a moment last year where oh god what's her name the awful bloody nadine dorries the, the, the yeah the awful woman as i just trailed her nadine dorries who is a cabinet minister in the uk who's an idiot but she she was kind of boris johnson's like best mate but boris hated her because everyone did whole thing anyway she was doing the launch for the rugby league world cup coming back to the uk <laughs> And she was asked for a favourite rugby league moment. And she said Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal in 2003 was the best rugby league moment of all time. And no one corrected her. They just stared at her in Wigan. Do um, you know what my favourite rugby league moment of all time was? What? Mick Morgan's commentary. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the same off. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she should have said Stein that. Pike. Yeah, it's just a much, much easier reference. Simon and everyone's going to get that. Like when he says Middleton in field, he's talking about Simon Middleton. How mad is that? And the fact that I'd watched that clip for like 10 years and I've been watching the Red Roses play for like five years before I realised that's the same guy. The Incredible same crossover. Guy. Incredible. So, yeah, that World Cup final looms big in the background here. Since that World Cup final, these teams had played five times. 
And the results have been pretty unanimous. Australia won four of them. But the interesting thing is when you look at those results themselves, right? So the first game after the World Cup final, the year after, England came and played in Australia. And Australia won 51-15. Wow. Later that year, Australia came and played at Twickenham and won 21-19. The following year, England won by 10 at Twickenham, 26-16. But then, 2006... England went and toured Australia, and they got battered. 34-3 and 43-12. So there were four wins for Australia, three of them absolute smashings in the lead-up to this, which very much, I think, fueled the confidence. You know, the fact the year before, these games have been 30-odd points. And now, the only one I remember from this era was the one game England won. You know, Australia went on won the three games following this as well, like... England wouldn't win again against Australia until 2010 with that Ben Young's try in that second test. You know, start of Ben Young's career, his first start for England. He scores this brilliant solo try and kind of books himself a place in that nine jersey for 50 more years until Alex Mitchell springs to life out of the Nardman cartoon. But yeah, the one game they remember is the one that people remember. 2007 quarterfinal. They win the one that matters. Yeah. In terms of just before the game starts... The big moment of high drama that I really like is when the two teams come out. Mm. And so Phil Vickery is leading out England, Sterling Mortlock leading out Australia. And at this point, the two teams have to come out together is the vibe of this World Cup rather than one team comes out first, then the other one. Because there's no home team, they both come out together, right? So Vickery and Mortlock slightly face off in the tunnel next to each other. Vickery kind of gives Mortlock a look as if to say you're going down again kind of thing and Mortlock has this kind of brash confidence about him and so they're both given the signal you can go on you can run onto the pitch Mm. and so run on Australia do Mortlock jogs out looking very confident as I say and Vickery on the other hand walks very very slowly with the intention of letting Australia get onto the pitch and stand there and think as they watch England gradually get onto the pitch. I really like this as a piece of mind games. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily know entirely what it means, I, but I, I love that it happens. I'm the same part. I've got no idea what this means, but I kind of love it. I love it as a moment of drama, just as the two teams kind of having their own approach. And the, you know, the commentary says like, oh, they've each got their own style of how they want to run out. But it feels like England are doing it to put pressure on Australia somehow. They are. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like they're there to, to piss them off. Because the, they'll, they'll come out in their own time, at their own speed. Yeah. They'll then, play this game on their Immediately afterwards, immediately afterwards, the anthem starts for Australia, who are first on the anthems. And as they're starting, they're asked to move down and like file in differently. So like as the, the intro to Advanced Australia Fair is playing, they all have to like shuffle down and get re in a line further down. So that changes everything again. Like it's a really disruptive first minute for australia i think and i don't think it gets in their head i think it's bullshit i think like you know the infamous one about ireland and the bus and everything yeah yeah. right i can get why that would frustrate a team i don't think enough to lose a game but i can see why it would get under their skin a bit and you know and maybe once i've made a few mistakes on the field they think like oh god nothing's going away this day but i don't think these have any bearing on the result whatsoever me neither but but it's fun fun narrative it's it's fun to add to it my other favorite thing from pre-match right is brian ashton when he's interviewed pre-match, says, I'm really glad we're going this game on an upwards curve, not a downwards curve. I'm like, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah, does add, no it would be shit, difficult mate. to go on a downwards curve after losing to South Africa 36-0. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but it got better. We beat Tonga. Yeah, just. Yeah. 
Yeah, very interesting mixed vibes from England going into this, but yeah, quietly confident is the vibe. Yeah, Toby Flood sings the English anthem in a World Cup quarterfinal, which is fantastic work. And then the game gets underway and it is immediately scrappy. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, the first note I have is wait, are they playing one at rugby on halfway in a rugby world cup quarterfinal? Specifically, I think talking about England here? Yeah. That they're on halfway, just going like one-up forward crashes. And I'm thinking like, why are they not kicking it? Because at this current stage, if you are not going forwards and you are just constantly chilling around halfway for about 10, 15 phases, you just stick it in the air or you stick it downfield. You try and find some space. You try something different. But instead here, they go, oh, okay, that's not working. Let's just go to the backs instead. If anything, that's more risky. So Joe Worsley was asked about this before the 2023 World Cup. He was asked about his memories of 2007 and England's run there and you know being in France and everything. And of this game in particular, he said that he felt like it was the game they needed. That the two games before that, Tonga and Samoa, he said, were pretty bruising. We didn't play great, but we controlled them. We chiseled down how we were going to play over those two games, which is interesting because England, and it shows didn't have a clear game plan going into the tournaments and they worked it out over those games against Tonga and Samoa, which we've seen in other World Cups where teams have got better as the tournament's gone on and they've kind of refined their tactics. Or held stuff back. Yeah, but it feels insane that they went in without knowing how they're going to play and they worked it out. And then they came into this game and again, Simon Shaw was asked about this and he said basically they, they looked at the Australian pack and they looked at the games that played against Australia before where everything had gone well Australia, except England got to the top of the scrum. And so they went, well, that's what we've got to do. We just got to make the game as physical and as niggly as possible. Yeah, Simon Shaw said the mantra was, let's get the job done. It doesn't matter what it looks like. He said, no one's going to say they won a World Cup, but God, they played awful rugby. Who cares? Which is funny because people are trying to say that about the Springboks these days, and it's not a valid argument. No, exactly. <laughs> and people said about England in 2023, and people said about England in this World Cup. And you know what? In many ways, they were right in this World Cup in particular. But I think it raises an interesting point, right? Because I think England in Rugby World Cups are split really cleanly into two categories with two outliers. So you have... One category, the main category, which is World Cups, in which England were playing kind of sexy rugby, attacking rugby going into the tournament, and then they binned it all in order to play conservative rugby, and they overperformed expectations, right? So you have last year, 
where Eddie Jones is trying to create this like really innovative new attack. They bin it, they get Steve Borkwick in, and they overbore my expectations and finish third. You have 2007, where they do exactly that mid-tournament. 1991, they do that exactly mid-tournament, and then you know they get to the final and they start playing attacking rugby infamously, and it all backfires on them. Um, you have 2003, where they were playing far more attacking rugby with Brian Ashton as attack coach. He goes... They decide to lean fully into the Wilkinson drop goal bullshit and they win a World Cup. The one real outlier is 2019, where they were excellent playing an all-court brand of rugby, which in some ways is the best like all-court rugby England have ever played. But they didn't have that one strength, which is maybe what they were missing in the way the Springboks did. They were kind of a, you know, masters of none and jack-of-all-trades kind of team. But the other category of England World Cup performances is ones where they continued trying to be the team who ran the ball and were exciting and people enjoyed watching them and they underperformed and they went badly. So 2011, they did not lean into the Johnny Wilkinson bullshit as they tried. They picked Johnny Wilkinson and had him trying to play a game plan, built more for Toby Flood. Yeah. And it just didn't work. Nothing worked. And out of form Johnny Wilkinson as well. Yeah. 99, likewise, like nothing really clicked. They were trying to continue with the kind of attacking rugby form they'd been in in the Carling era and couldn't do it. And then, most famously, 2015, yeah. where Stuart Lancaster had built this side that was lovable and friendly, and everyone enjoyed watching them, and they want, he wanted England to be a team that people didn't hate anymore. And they did that. He got them to be that. And they were shit. Yeah, they went out on the group got, stage. Knocked down the group stage in their home World Cup. Only team to ever be knocked down the group stage of the home World Cup, and the only England team to ever go out in the groups. Yeah. Right. So a colossal failure, really, all around. That is to say, basically, at World Cups, right, England have a choice, play boring rugby or underachieve. And I know it doesn't always have to be like that, and 2019 proves that. But at the same time, it kind of feels like it's in the English rugby DNA. And you can see there's a stage in this game where England are keep making it so scrappy that their chances start to rise. Yeah. And the thing I have in my notes from pretty early on, from sort of maybe 10 minutes in rather than the very start, but... If Johnny Wilkinson goes full fit him and just takes control of this game, England are going to win without question. Yeah. If he does a damn bigger and goes, this game is mine now. I am grabbing, grabbing the scruff of its neck and I shall never let thee go. England are home and host. On the basis that a lot of people say this is the worst team to ever make a Rugby World Cup final. A lot of people yeah. made that observation. And on the base of the group stage, I obviously agree, looking mm. and going like, how did these guys make the final? I looked at this game and thought, I'm willing to be convinced because yeah. the style of rugby that they play, it is just winning rugby. It's what you yeah. want to play. They they clearly know what the formula is for winning a World Cup knockout game. Yeah, I think Mike Cat is weirdly brilliant in this game. Okay. The, Early on, he puts a lovely chip, which very nearly leads to a try, if not for quite an unlucky bounce. He often, when Gomasol is under a bit of pressure, he steps in and delivers passes from nine, box kicks even. There's one box kick he puts in, which would be a 50-22 nowadays, early Hmm. on. And he's a really good foil for Johnny Wilkinson in this game. And I'd spent all of this time going like, what does Mike Cat really bring, though? And I watched this game and went, oh, no, he's a bit of an all-round centre. And he had a really good game. Well, because the other interesting thing about that England team, right, is you compare it to the team that got battered in Australia a year beforehand by Australia, and there's only three players in the starting team that remain mm. to the team that plays in the quarterfinal, who are the two centres, Mike Cat and Matthew Tate, 
and Lewis Moody for seven. Okay. Um, the mate, that England team is dog shit. Oh, no. It's mad. Peter Richards and Ollie Barkley's halfbacks. Pat Sanderson, eight and captain. Oh, um, wow. Ian Bolshaw, Tom Von Dell, and Tom Voice on the wings. Oh, Tom Voice, good player. Good player. Magnus Lund at six. Oh, like, yes. It's You've got Andy Goode and Jamie Noon on the bench with Nick Walsh as a scrum off. I don't know who Nick Walsh Never was. Never heard of him. He went to an independent school in West Sussex. What a surprise. He went on to coach England in the 20s in 2013. Yeah, won two caps for England on that tour. Played 96 games for Bath and a bunch for Sale and Saracens as well. He's Would have been unreal head... if he made it to a quarterfinal though, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> currently attack coach at Coventry in the championship. Oh, good for him. Good for um, him. But like the Australia team is pretty similar. The Australia team is almost the same. There's a few changes like, you know, Gitto comes in from Matt Rogers at 12. But otherwise you're looking at pretty much the same sides. And Stephen Moore comes in a hooker. But the, the England team is completely different. And what they've done is they've reverted back to 2003 and they've reverted back in more ways than one. They've brought back in a lot of older heads and nigglier players. And they've also brought in a lot of Leicester Tigers players, which I think is notable because it's an era where Leicester Tigers were completely dominant and they played a completely forward-based style of rugby. There was no expansive rugby being played there at all. They won the Premiership over and over again by having the best pack in the Premiership. And you kind of had Wasps under Warren Gatland were kind of the other contenders there. And they've got a few Wasp players in there like Simon Shaw and so on. And Andrew Sheridan and Phil Vickery, but they've got a very, very big like Leicester contingent, especially in that back five. And then on the bench, they've got more. And I think a lot of that, just DNA of getting in two really solid packs, taking them in and bringing back the 2003 mentality, as well as the literal players, has helped them enormously. Because suddenly they feel like a different team. But you know what I realise now we're addressing all of this as mm. the post-game narrative, I suppose. Yeah. In the first 20 minutes, Australia really get on top in the scrum? Yeah. And only yeah. for the first 20 minutes. And I kind of didn't realise what a big, massive momentum shift that is. Because one of the first things that happens in this game, Australia win a scrum penalty, and Mortlock goes for it from about 40 metres and misses. At which point, Wilkinson puts in the 22 dropout, England give away a penalty at the breakdown straight away, and Mortlock goes for it again and gets it from pretty much the exact same spot. Which, you yeah. know what? Fair play to him, second time does it. But after that, Australia do get a couple of scrum penalties and Mortlock leaves sort of six or nine points out there that yeah. come from the scrum being a good platform and they don't capitalise on that, unfortunately. And then, unfortunately, that, that swings for them. It goes in England's favour. That penalty, so he misses a penalty really early on. He then kicks one a few minutes later, like makes amends immediately. That is the only one of his five shots at goal that he gets. Well, he gets the conversion as well for the, the try yeah. later, but yeah. uh, it's the only one of his five penalties he gets, which is huge in this game particularly when the opposite man is johnny wilkinson and his presence yeah. looms large so when asked about the england team john connell the australia coach says they've got a few really obvious strengths they've got a good pack they've got a great scrum they've got wilkinson and they've got some pace out wide right there are very few other players that we talked about that blatantly name drop name yeah. yeah they wouldn't go oh they've got so-and-so who's a good player so-and-so they just say wilkinson offhand because everyone knows what that means but when you watch this game, you have the exact same thought, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Like, They've got Johnny Wilkinson. There's a point early on, well, not early on, it's not long after that penalty, right, mm. where England have a really nice attack where they go wide and it's off, off turnover ball, so Simon Shaw gets the turnover sort of on the 10-metre line in the Australian half. They go wide, doesn't really work, and then try going wide again. 
and there's this lovely back inside ball from Martin Corry to Jason Robinson. Mm. And Jason Robinson makes a clean line break, which you can already tell in quite a cagey game is going to be a rarity. Robinson gets tackled and England go through 12 phases. And immediately, as a viewer, I'm going, come on, Wilkinson, I know you want this. Yeah. I know you want this. I know you want to just cash in and take three points out of this. And unfortunately, they don't. Mike Cat makes a little half break, forces an offload off the ball, and they lose it on the five-meter line. They lose it on the five-meter line, and it is thrown loose to Stephen Moore, who goes, shit, got to get rid of this, (laughs) and does genuinely, I think, the worst clearance kick I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) <laughs> he kicks it straight up in the air and like two meters across straight into the hands of lewis moody yeah literally on his own try line yeah and at that moment you remember this is a world cup quarter final and you go oh shit that's not good that's no. not what they wanted here it's atrocious like dick of the day nomination worthy yeah uh, england keep playing and eventually they do give away the penalty which they kick to put them back six free up yeah, Mike Cat does two grubbers in that movement, which yeah. both work, which is quite fun. He's just, he's a cat, isn't he? He loves to chase a ball. <laughs> yeah, fair point. But yeah, this is the thing. This is the moment I start to think, like, the moment Wilkinson steps up and takes control of this, this game is going to be won. Yeah. Really interesting as well, and this comes up again later in the game, but how differently I feel watching continued, continued, continued possession and phase play in that era to the current era. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a thing, you go back maybe five years to 2018, 2019, and the more phases you went through, the more likely you were to score at the time, right? Now, the more phases you go through, the less likely you are to score. The less likely most teams score. Yeah, exactly. Most teams score, like, I think it's like 80% of tries are scored in the first three phases. Yeah. First five, like, once you get past five or six, your chances go down dramatically because defenders get on top and they swarm you and you start to lose shape. That didn't feel the case at all here. And it felt just like genuinely like recycling the ball and like you had another go. Mm. It didn't feel like there was one team getting on top of the other. It didn't feel like going through, you know, can England go through, if you include both sides of that Stephen Moore clearance, England go through probably about 20 odd phases here. And it didn't feel like they were getting any more or any less likely to score with each one. I know what you mean. Where you look at, there was a really clear period five years ago where the team that had the ball more were more likely to score, where the team will have the ball less is, you know, the defence now is more on top if the team has the ball for long phases. We saw that with Wales big time at Twickenham the other week. Yeah, massively. And once again, that really suits England because they have Johnny Wilkinson. I know that in this game, he isn't necessarily going for drop goals all the time. There's a few times where he does attempt it and misses, but... He just needs to stop pretending that playing for England in the 2007 Rugby World Cup is a team game. Yeah, yeah, 100% that. He gets another penalty not long after this from 40-odd metres, putting England in the lead. England start doing pick and goes on the 40-metre line, right? And it's the moment where you go like, this is brilliant, this is exactly the tactic. Pick and go on the 40-metre line, take ages at every ruck because they really were, because there was no like use it call from the referee at the time. He couldn't yeah. ping them for time-wasting if they took it as long as they wanted at every ruck, right? And what they would do is England forwards just kept picking fights at rucks. <laughs> so like Lewis Moody and Martin Corry at successive rucks pick a fight for random Australian forward. And in one of them, one of them gives away a penalty, which Johnny Wilkinson then kicks from 40. And that is a brilliant game plan if you're in 2007. I feel like my 
my vision of Martin Corrie isn't the same as somebody who actually watched this era of rugby and supported England, mm. right? But I feel like most of his job is to pick fights, and he's very yeah. good at it. He takes lineouts and picks fights. Yeah. What more do you want? <laughs> exactly. Good on him. Also, I'm kind of realising what probably happened with regarding the scrum. I can only assume that Australia won those penalties illegally, had something pointed out to the referee, and then suddenly started getting pinged at every single scrum. I can only assume that's what happened because Alan Roland very quickly loses patience with them. I think it's the sign of a great technical scrummager, though, if you can turn around a scrum that's struggling. Yeah, And Phil Vickery was a great technical scrummager. But also, nowadays as well, the sign of a great scrum coach, if they can turn it around and they can bring on a note or so. I remember Duncan Jones doing it once for the Ospreys where they're really struggling against the scrum at sale. Then Duncan Jones comes on during a water break and explains something to the props. You can see it on the camera. And suddenly they win penalties on the next couple of scrums. And... That's the sign of a great scrum coach for me. And the sign of a great scrummager isn't necessarily just power. It's can you turn around a scrum where you're struggling? And yeah. Phil Vickery very much does that. And that yeah. was Phil Vickery's real worth as a scrummager rather than the pure power or the pure, you know, bloody big lumpness. If you're Adam Jones, you know, as he's described by Jason. I Leonard. guess his resilience. Yeah. And he would find a way out of problems. He was a problem solving prop, I guess, rather than. I really a pure like power him as a prop. captain, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Props as captains has kind of gone slightly out of fashion in the last few years, and I don't like that. Yeah. But, well, I know why it is. It's because they're obviously in on conditions to play longer hour, than 50-odd yeah. minutes. And if you want a squad captain, you want them to probably on, be on for 70, 80 minutes. But I really like for Vickery as a captain. He seems really yeah. just genuinely positive and heartfelt in everything he does. And I, I get a real sense of honesty in the way he leads. And He's a great England captain for the exact same reasons he was a really shit commentator on 2011. Yes, you know because he absolutely loves playing for england it means the world to him that he got to do that yeah and then he won master chef as well so what a blessed life he had indeed but that is exactly the guy who wants to be a captain a guy who makes you excited and thrilled and yeah. honored to be playing alongside him yeah and i think that he kind of sums up what the role of a tight prop is it's yeah i want you 14 to do something more exciting than me so i can bend down and just win you the ball and do nothing else yeah like how how cool is that as a position in rugby and if that's got... your job for your your mates in your country how cool is that ashton's got plenty of leadership options in this team you know dalio's yeah. on the bench who obviously is captain england will captain england again after this vickery's there obviously but then like simon shaw ben k lewis moody nick easter martin corrie and johnny wilkinson have all captain england before mike cat as well yeah. all of them Jason Robinson's england captain england yeah, of course. So they're, they're full of experience. And again, a lot of that is the team they brought in in the last year. You know, Mark Regan yeah. as well, perhaps less of a captain, but like a really experienced player. Captain Bristol for a while as well. So you've got loads and loads of leadership options in that team, which becomes a vital part of it. Yeah. And yeah, Vickery is the one. He is the one that makes the most sense. Uh, yeah. I love that he... Uh, uh, yeah, I just love his approach to playing rugby, just generally. We don't get many more chances to talk about Mark Regan, right? So I do want to mention something. Um, mm-hmm. So he played for England for the last time, the following Six Nations in 2008. He then retired from international. He retired from rugby the year after for Bristol, but he plays last season there. And England went, oh, fine, whatever, done. Big part of this, right? <laughs> Big thing that came up was England beat France the following Six Nations in 2008 in Paris. And this was Mark Regan's last game for England. <laughs> Mark Lievermont, the French coach at the time, said, <laughs> of Mark Regan, right? He said, "I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that grotesque clown is retiring." <laughs> <laughs> oh, how to, how you show you've done a good job in an England shirt? You have I left know. the jersey in a better position. If that's what the opposition, particularly French coaches, saying about you afterwards. 
<laughs> his behavior at times has always been unacceptable. <laughs> he's a grotesque clown, and I'm glad he's retiring. That is that is a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> Mark Regan said, I'm I disappointed bet... he called me a clown, but when you come to France, you know you've got to go there to get under blah bloody blah Yeah, yeah. Nah, he took that with pride. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't you? And forever now, that is how I will view Mark Regan and how Mark Regan should be viewed as the beautiful, grotesque clown from Mark Lee from On Apes. Absolutely incredible. You're so far in his head. You're Bring so more far of in that his head. back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Call Dan Cole a big shit. Yeah. Gautier, exactly. a day. Can somebody please interview Guillaume Garrado and ask his opinions on Sebastian Valmahina, please? Yeah. <laughs> Hurry up and do that. So there's. A point where I just have written my notes on Peter Richards because Andy Gomeso goes off for a blood substitution. Yeah. And they bring on the guy called Peter Richards, who apparently played for England. They bring him on in the quarterfinal, which is wild. We but get six minutes of heaven. We do. <laughs> six whole minutes of Peter Richards' quarterfinal. But yeah, England play a few phases. Cap was in a great hit of a kick chase. Saki wins a turnover. And they play a few phases, but not just any great particular speed. Which is, there's a moment that really just bugs me where Dan Vickerman gives away a really daft penalty for playing the the nine. Oh, yeah. And it's like, bro, chill. He's Peter Richards. You don't have to play the nine. You don't have to view him as any great sort of threat. (laughs) Like, just let him let him be Peter Richards and your team will be okay. It's what people mean when they say, let him be yourself. Yeah. But Wilkinson misses the penalty anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't materialise as anything. But like, come on, it's Peter Richards. You don't Peter need to Richards, do that. Formerly of Benetton Treviso. Yeah, exactly. Former Sevens player. <laughs> he's like these. Normally, when you see this, oh, a former Seven specialist on the bench covering scrum off, you're like, oh, they'll be really nippy. No, he's Peter Richards. Mind you, Alex Mitchell came from Sevens. Yeah, and he's really nippy. That's true. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought you were mixing up Nippy and made a pasta scene. Never mind. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Easy mistake to make and knows what a reindeer is. Knows what um, a reindeer is, eventually. So, England start to slowly take control of this game, right? Yeah. And they are here a purely kicking team. And yet, my favourite thing that happens over this first half in particular is they have one vice... They're a team who kicks and fights and scrummages, but they have one thing they're addicted to, and that is quick dropouts. Right. Where does the Nick Easter quick 22 dropout come from? How how does that scan with this style of play? Is it just that everyone wants to do drop kicks now? Is that what it is? England take three quick dropouts in this game. Two of them by forwards. Yeah. And the other by Paul (laughs) Sackey. Like it's it's a ridiculous ben kind K of wrinkle takes to the game. Yeah, it's Ben Kane, Nick Easter, Paul Saki take their dropouts, and they're, they're this team that they want to do nothing except slowly grind you down and beat you up and kind of get into you at scrum time, and then watch Johnny Wilkinson kick it over from forty odd meters and then nail a drop goal whenever they get into your twenty-two. Right, except for unless it's a twenty-two dropout. And weirdly, I think Beric Barnes starts to lean into this because they start kicking the ball dead a disproportionate amount of the time. <laughs> and so then we end up keep watching England have to take these endless dropouts, and every single time Wilkinson's like lobbing it to someone quickly who's in a bit of space, who's taking this little quick dropout, and they'll try and play a bit of rugby. Then they'll go like, "Oh no, Johnny, can you do the kick you were going to do a minute ago?" We had. 
farted around for a while. But especially because you remember in the USA game, remember Ben K's kick that he attempted in there? Yes. And he thought, yeah, it's quarter final. I might as well do a, like a harder version of a kick. I'll do a drop kick this time. That can't possibly go wrong. And it doesn't. No. But where does that logic come from? I guess they've been practicing the last couple of weeks just in case they needed him to kick. It's a baffling, baffling addition to their game, but I greatly enjoyed seeing their one kind of vice and weakness. They do, however, at one point run the move. You know the move. The move, yeah, the move. The move, they run we the, move. the move. Where they chuck someone up at the time. and throw it back to Mark Regan, who runs into touch. It's a, it's a good move. It's a good move, good move. More on front rows running into touch later on. Yes, indeed. So um, they get towards the end of this half, right? Adam Ashley Cooper commits a terrible tackle. He takes Paul Saki out in the air completely. Horrible attempt to tackle. He also um, drops a kickoff cold. ASA. Yeah. There's kind of a rough few minutes. Yeah. Um, England pump it long into the 22. And from there, finally, the moment the ball leaves the mall that England were trying to do for a bit, Wilkinson looks out wide. He's bouncing for a pass and he goes, nah, actually, and goes back onto his wrong foot and tries a snap drop goal attempt. And he misses it. But it's the moment I felt most confident England were going to win this game. Because yeah. suddenly you're going, oh, hold on. They're, gonna, they're doing it. They're leaning into They're leaning into this approach. Yeah. They're really looking to lean Just into the... Manufacture a shit drop goal out of yeah. somewhere. That Take three points the same everywhere. amount of points as, yeah, as any three-pointer. Yeah. And he misses a penalty off the back of that as well. But the thing is, it doesn't really matter. Even yeah. though it's more that they're getting these opportunities and you know that he will convert enough of them. You know yeah. that this isn't... That a Johnny Wilkinson off day is still worth more points than most fly halves. Exactly, yeah. But there's another big moment before half There is another big moment. We get Scott Johnson jump scare. <laughs> we see Scott Johnson out of nowhere, which is a cursed memory for Scotland or Ospreys fans. Indeed, indeed. However, there's a really nice break that Lottie Tinkuri makes yes. on his own, where he takes somebody on the outside. He has such good feet, Lottie Tinkuri. He's such a fun player to watch. But he gets up into the English 22, and Australia slow it down for some reason. Mm. And it's really confusing that they're suddenly then just going, right, we'll go through the forwards, but we'll have really slow phases. And it gives England a lot of chance to kind of regain their breath, to defend, whatever. But luckily... This Australian backline are exciting enough that they have a couple more big moments in them. I don't think they're slowing it down. I think England are doing a really good job of just chucking people in. Phil Vickery makes one particular really great job of slowing it down, yeah. where he's completely like over the ball, not supporting his own body weight, but Roland lets it go for a while and then calls him to leave. Yeah, Alan Roland, who's the referee in this game. <laughs> Even if he wasn't, he could have just told him, you know. But the Australian commentators are furious throughout this game that Australia are leaving no one in the breakdown every time England have the ball. But England are throwing people in on every breakdown because they're just trying to get in amongst them and trying to slow it down. Um, and I think there's a little bit of both. You know, I don't think Australia play to their full capability, but I also think this is the other passage where Australia have this ball for like 15, 16 phases and you can never quite tell whether it's going well or badly. Yeah. Like they lose a lot of ground at one point, then they make it back up instantly with um, Gitto makes a half break and, you know, there's a couple of lovely balls put in and a few good carries and things start to kind of build slowly until it gets wide and Beric Barnes has two beautiful touches in a row. He does. He does this fantastic dummy switch where he really sells it. He does the full let go with the ball and catch it again on that dummy <laughs> switch, uh, which is always very aesthetically pleasing when it works. And 
ships it onto Latham. Saki puts in a brilliant tackle on Latham to stop him just short of the try line. So they're up to within sort of one meter of the line now. Yeah. At which point, everyone floods in. George Gregan is nowhere to be seen. Beric Barnes steps in at scrum half himself and makes a little dart before offloading to Lottie Curie, who's the one man alone on the side. Yeah. An England player goes in to try and tackle him. I'm not sure what, I think it might have been Tate's. Goes in to try and get him. Dekuri kind of wriggles him off. Future bless the teammate, of course, very briefly. And dives over to score in the corner. Once again against England, just as happened in that final in 2003. It's a brilliant finish by Dekuri, isn't it? It is. Uh, with the outstretched right paw to slam the ball down there as he's getting tackled. It shows great strength to get over there. And yeah, it's a much better finish than it kind of looks. Yeah, no, fantastic. And really well taken try by Australia and by Takuri in particular. Puts them ahead. Yeah. The first moment where you feel like Australia are in the game and you feel like yeah. they could kick on from here. You know, it could kind because of be England have an initial fight and then after half an hour, Australia wake up and kick it's on. something that's so easy to underestimate in a knockout game, but just the same as if Wilkinson gets loads of penalty opportunities, eventually he's going to knock them over. If this Australian backline, as entertaining and flashy as they are, if they get space, that is worth potentially over twice as many points as that. Yeah. All it takes is for that to happen once. Even if they've had none of the momentum, they can suddenly shift the entire game. And if that happens again in the second half, they're winning. All they need is one more opportunity. Exactly. And we sort of then spill forward into halftime. Yeah. Um, LA plays in the stadium at halftime. Which is... Fantastic. Great rendition. All the crowd are there with it. All the crowd are up for it. Scott Johnson's in the shed, so we're not looking at him. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then, just as we all kind of settled into, well, are Australia coming back? Is this all going to happen? England won a scrum penalty straight off the restart. Almost immediately. And kind of the inevitability begins. Yeah. A great moment in that scrum as well is it leads to a fight. There's a great prop fight. Alan Rowland calls in the props. It's Andrew Sheridan and Matt Dunning have a little back and forth, bit of a fight. Uh, so he calls the two of them in as well as the two captains, including Vickery. And at one point, one of the Australian players, I think it's Dunning, says, I didn't throw a punch, sir. And Alan Rowland goes, I didn't say there was a punch, which shows that there <laughs> definitely was a punch. Very funny. Australia then have quite a long attack shortly afterwards, which looks like it's going somewhere and it breaks down completely. They get turned up. Gitto gets, you know, sent backwards, gets kind of ball thrown behind him. He tries to recover. He makes a couple of yards. Then he just gets turned over and just flattened at the breakdown. Yeah. And Mike Cat picks up a scrum off and puts in a beautiful kick in the England 22. Australian yeah. 22, rather. He doesn't put it in his own 22, though I wouldn't put it past him, the way the England team has been playing. He puts it into the Australian 22. And again, it just feels like a big shift in momentum. It kind of feels like Australia aren't getting the breaks that it looked like they might be able to at the end of the half. And they're not helping themselves, really. I think they're kind of inviting more and more errors. There's one point where England like shove on Australia quite early in a scrum. And that's not to say in a way it should be penalised, probably in a way that maybe should be reset. Mm. And yet, despite the fact it's pack a back pedalling, George Gregan puts the ball in. Yeah. Um, and th- it just invites Australia to go backwards. And look, I don't want to tell the most capped scrum off of all time how to do his job, but 
You like I would have thought that somebody with 139 caps in that position would know, you know what, let's just leave that one, see if we can get a free kick out of it, yeah. or just a reset, and then we'll go from there. Rather than going, you know what, let's just put this ball in, and then he fumbles the ball at the back, Johnny Wilkinson picks it up. Luckily for Australia, Mike Cat drops it five metres out from the line, but England came so close to scoring an extremely cheap try there. Yeah. There's also a moment quite early on in that half where... Nathan Sharp does like a head-on-head tackle on Mike Cat, and Mike Cat mm. goes down, has like a bit of treatment to his head, checking he's all right. And one of the commentators said, "Oh, Mike Cat just needs to get up, take a glass of Harden up, and get on with it." Shut up! Jesus Christ! Man, it shows how far we've come 16. a long way. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think that that was just a very of-the-time comment rather than a reflection on whichever commentator it is. But yeah, yeah. it it's nice that those comments aren't made anymore. A glass of Harden up. Yep. Wouldn't it be a solid food? I think it would, yeah. It's a good Not point. a liquid. Yeah. By definition, yeah, you'd think so. They're doing something wrong if you can drink it. Yeah. Or you could have it just served in a glass. Yeah. Like, you know, you can have ice in a glass and that's solid. England do have one really clean-cut opportunity to score in this half. Paul Saki is right on the outside. They're going to score, but... Unfortunately, the man in the wide channel is Mark Regan, who goes for the sidestep into the really simple pass to put the guy in space into oh. the opportunity. It's like it's an Oppenheimer level bomb. Like it's <laughs> horrible to watch. Like I thought it was Mike Cat at first, and I was like fuming at the thought of a 12, an experienced 12 who can play 10, bombing that. When you realize it's a hooker, it's slightly better, but you're still like, you should be able to pass a basic ball. It's grotesque. It, it is the work of a grotesque clown. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating. But on that same one, England do come away with points, though, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. Wilkinson kicks penalty shortly afterwards. Fascinating that every World Cup we've covered, England's primary goal kick has been a man called Jonathan. Jonathan oh, W. After Wilkinson yeah. and Webb. Oh, good old Jonathan Webb. Good old Jonathan Webb. He should be brought up in the conversation more as the um, best England player of all time. Yeah, I think he really should. Although that said, we are forgetting about... um... Yes, we are forgetting about him. Yeah, Yeah. Mike Harrison from Wakefield. completely forgetting about Mike Harrison of Wakefield. (laughs) Did you know that that was who I was going to say, or were you taking the piss? No. (laughs) No, you forgot. And Peter Williams from Oral as well. (laughs) Mike Harrison of Wakefield is an excellent player. Great player. And I won't hear otherwise. Yeah. Straight off the kickoff, Matt Kitter makes a break. Uh, yeah. Like off a deflected ball, manages to put Wyclef Palu through a gap and they get through into the 22. And it's so annoying because Australia just do not look after the ball. That Palu on the floor yeah. tries to slip it back and ends up getting the ball dislodged. And it's the cardinal sin at this point in the game. You're still ahead by one point, potentially luckily so. Just see if you can go through a few phases and see what happens. And it's infuriating that he tries this kind of like 10%er offload, which probably wouldn't lead to a try if he actually managed to get it to hand. It would maybe just speed up the ball a little bit. It's so infuriating that they don't look after the ball in that scenario. Well, John Connolly, the Australia coach afterwards, said people will talk about the scrum, which got into strife, as he says it. But the real issue was England controlled the breakdown. And they are not looking after the ball at all. And I think a lot of that is a lack of focus rather than, you know, some inherent brilliance in the England play. I think Australia were not expecting this to be an issue because they've been playing off such quick ball or tournaments. Yeah. And when we talk about kind of the stuff they haven't learnt from being in these blowouts all the time, right? Yes, a lot of it is the game management of Beric Barnes and so on. 
But a big part of that is just the forwards being able to deal with games in which they're not getting quick ball yeah, and being able to set up properly and generate quick ball again if you're not getting it and be able to reset and rework your entire game plan if things aren't going smoothly on the first few phases. Spot on. And instead, what's happened with Australia is they keep going through phase after phase after phase and it works out for the one try for Securi. It works out once in the entire game. They only score the one try. And they don't really have another passage where they are clean-cut going to score or mm. they make it up there. There's a few individual breaks or individual moments where they get somewhere. I don't think there's a clean-cut chance again. Well, no, there's sort of one, but, you know, we'll get onto that. It's an issue. There is one real play that I love from Beric Barnes, though, where he takes the ball at 10 on one side of a ruck. The ball's on sort of the 50-meter line. And he throws the reverse pass, like, back to the winger on the other side, who's in yes. motion. Which is a lovely... Who's hitting an angle on the other yeah. side of the ruck. Loved it. Never seen that before. No. A movie I've never seen before that can be really effective. I want to see someone try that again now. Yeah, I want to see if that still works. Yeah. With defences being as well drilled as they are with the whole line coming up. See yeah. if you can catch someone napping with that kind of a Because there move. was a phase a few years ago, about three years ago, of players running back towards the ruck because that was where the most space was because defenders pushed off in that very yeah. springbok style of catch-up defenders. They would hair it across, assuming you're going outwards all the time, bring attackers back in towards the ruck in order to try and attack that space around the ruck again once they'd already left. Yeah. Um, you could do something similar in hitting the other side of the ruck again. I just think that's an interesting kind of... It's an on-the-cuff play by Barnes who's just scanning the full field and noticing something on the other side of the breakdown. But It feels like something Italy would run these days. Yes. Yeah. It's like, oh, but this one defender is going to be out of place somehow. What elaborate play can we do to get the ball there? You get the winger running what looks like a dummy line to hold the inside guard. And instead, you know, have them actually hit that line. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think there's something in that. Agreed. Agreed. Australia lose the ball. Gomesol kicks it downfield. And Chris Latham goes for an absolutely huge drop goal attempt. Yeah. I'll level with you. I really <laughs> like this as an option. Me too. Me too. Because they're playing that poorly that if they can just scrap some points that they don't deserve out of somewhere, that's exactly what they need. Yeah. Because they'll have another moment where they'll come back into the game. If they can get something out of this period, then that's a great shout. And it's very close to getting it. They're one um, point it's behind. It's a long-range one. No, so they're one point one ahead. One point ahead, yeah. And he sends it just wide. He's got the distance. Yeah. He hits it from his own half. He's got the distance, and it goes wide. Yeah. And the commentators don't like this at all. They really hate it. But England hit the 20 drop out, and this is the first one that they hit long properly, <laughs> right? And Latham takes the ball in in pretty much the same situation, right? Yeah. Only he carries it in and they make it sort of 10 metres, right? So he's... What happened here was he gambled. Either I can take 10 metres or I can have a drop goal attempt and then we'll get the ball back in the same place in like a couple of minutes' time. Yeah. And he took a shot. Yeah. No difference. I think it was a great option. And I'm surprised Australia didn't lean into it more. From that moment on, I was a bit like, well, why aren't they trying drop goals all the time? Because they know the dogfight they're in. They yeah. know they're against this England team. Who've it got really more frustrates points in them. me as well because the next attack they have. Because here Australia have like quite a few moments of possession around the England 22. Yeah. But aren't really doing anything creative with it, which is kind of the opposite of how they've been playing in the pool stages. Mm. There's one really infuriating moment where they get the ball back after Ditto had pinged the, tw the 22. Saki had responded very well and they gained loads of momentum kind of on the kick return. And at one stage, once again, Gregan's clearly off somewhere, probably with a Zimmer frame, you know, <laughs> can't get to the breakdown. And they make like a half break on the edge. Beric Barnes comes in at nine, just as they're getting into the 22. Uh, it's completely isolated. So instead of like looking to fling the ball back in field, he just goes for a very short grubber along the touchline. And it feels like such yeah. a waste of possession. 
that they could have set for something, tried to go for the drop goal or milk the penalty or try and tie the England pack in some sort of way. And instead he just completely wastes the ball. It's infuriating to watch. And again, I think that is an experience. That's the one moment where I looked at Barnes and went like, I'm not sure if you're cut out for this just yet. But it, Australia's mindset is we're going to get the ball back soon anyway. Yeah. Their mindset is very much that of a sevens team or a touch team who are perhaps less focused on defending because they're waiting to get the ball back, right? Yeah. And it's not that they're aggressively trying to get up in their face in order to win the ball back. They're waiting for it to come back to them. They're waiting for England to kick it back. They're waiting for an error. They're waiting for something to happen. And then they're soaking up in defense, waiting for it to come so that they can spring into action. They're basically kind of always in transition. Like they're always waiting to start again. Their defense is set up so that they can attack afterwards rather than to defend. Yeah. And they do an okay job of defending a particularly unexciting England attack, which isn't really doing anything, but it doesn't ever feel like they're going to put pressure on and win any points or win any ball out of their defence. The moment where I think the momentum really swings back in England's favour, Gregan throws an absolutely honking pass out to the wing, which bobbles along the floor. Cap boots it downfield, hacks it along the floor, uh, and it's back in the Australian 22. England win it back. Gomesol goes for a crossfield kick, which is speculative, but not a bad kick. Yeah. And everybody knocks it on from both teams. All 15 players decide, let's just knock this ball on. Yeah. But the first one was done by Australia. So England get the put in five metres out. And from that scrum, England mints them. Yeah. Vickery shoves them back. The penalty's given. Wilkinson knocks it over and England take the lead. You say the penalty's given. It's Rocky Elson professional foul. He sees that they're essentially about to get marched back over the line. So he breaks off the scrum to handle the ball, knock it out of the scrum to stop England from being able to play it. Uh, yeah. professional, complete total professional foul. I totally see why he went for it. I think it's an entirely fair penalty to go away. But yeah, Wilkinson ends up knocking it over. It's worth three points. We also do get in the lead up to this beforehand, a penalty for Dan Vickerman doing a mad assault on Andy Gomesol. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And once again, he's playing the nine, not realising who the nine necessarily yeah. is. Well, like Andy Gomesol gives him a little shove, right? And so Vickerman picks him up and he does like a full on like body slam swing, like throws him at the ground, like bloody MMA shit. The Andy Gomesol being like, I'm Andy Gomesol. Both him, him and Peter Richards have been Vickermaned. Yeah. Just unnecessary being a prick. You know, there's a time and a place, mate. Not straight in front of the touch judge. Yeah. And, you know, for, it, a bit frustrating because so far in this tournament and in the 2011 tournament, looking back and made me realise how good a player Dan Vickerman actually was. Yeah. But sadly, this was not his best game. No. Speaking of nines and not the best game, George Gregan starts to look more and more rattled as this game goes on. I think when George... he throws that pass, when he throws that pass and it costs mm. Australia all the momentum, all the attack, I think suddenly he starts to compound these errors. Yeah. It's really weird. I've never seen this George Gregan before. No. He looks like he knows this is his last game for Australia. Yeah. And that starts to get to him. And the pressure of knowing this is it, you know, that it isn't, funnily enough, right? At the end of this game, a full-time whistle went now with 10 minutes to go in this game. There wouldn't be anyone saying four more years to him because he didn't have four more years. This is him gone. This is his last yeah. game for Australia. He's retiring. He was one of the first players to go off to um, Japan. Really kind of legitimise that league going over there, being one of the first like big overseas names to go over. And then, you know, from there, from going to Santori Sun Goliath in 2008, was there for years, played until he was like 40-odd. And then, you know, that very much opened the pathway. Shane Williams go, 
soon after, Stephen Donald as well. You had loads of those players starting to join, starting to go over to the um, Japanese league. From it started by George Gregan going after this World Cup. He knows that's coming. He knows this is it. And it kind of starts to get to him. And his options start to get more and more erratic. He's saying more on himself. And none of it's going well. He doesn't look like himself, his normal calm, controlled prick self. Yeah. Instead, he's just being a prick. Yeah. Yeah. And... I think it has a bit of a ripple effect on Australia. Yeah. George Smith drops quite a clean-cut chance. Beric Barnes takes a desperate swipe at a drop goal, which mm. isn't really on, and there's nobody there to really advise him on what play to go with or yeah. how to set it up or anything. And he just goes for it kind of like out of chance. And that one is not as good an option as the Latham one. They give away a really stupid penalty on halfway, and Wilkinson yeah. goes for the post. He misses it, but it's still like... You still kind of very much look at Australia as they are starting to to rattle and fall over themselves. Yeah. I'll read out my notes on that section, actually. Mortlock smashed by Johnny Wilkinson. It was a great hit by Wilkinson as Mortlock was making a break. Mm. Uh, Wilkinson just smashes him, goes, no, straight to the floor. And Australia have a 4v1 overlap. And Paul Saki does a phenomenal job of shutting this down. Obviously, at the same time, you know, Latham bombed it, dropping the ball. Even before that, you could argue that Ghetto passed to the wrong guy rather than yeah. go for a mispass or whatever. But Saki does an exceptional piece of defence, flying up, putting the pressure on, forcing the dropped ball and shutting the overlap down entirely. I've then written down, Touch Judge steps in to give a penalty, but wasn't listening to what it was for because Alea is playing in the background. <laughs> I was listening yeah, to more the, important things. The Toucher steps in for Dan Vickerman absolutely like marsupialing Andy Gomesol. Oh, that's the one. He like puts him in a cannon and then fires him back out. (laughs) So yeah, so England are on top, but not very far ahead on the scoreline. And Australia have this real sense as we get to like five minutes out of like, shit, no, now's the time. And they start to look more serious in the last five minutes rather than like, this will come good. We'll be, you know, we'll be fine. Suddenly they start to play it like it's a World Cup quarterfinal rather than like a piss about game. Also, they bring on Drew Mitchell, who has a real yes. impact. Makes a He's break immediately. His first touch of the ball, his first passage of play, makes a break, dummies around one man. Brilliant break, gets them up, and you start to wonder, like, oh, are they going to have this momentum again? And Simon Shaw, being the chippy big bastard he is, gets through to the chippy little bastard on the other team in George Gregan. And as soon as he picks the ball up, Shaw essentially dives over the ruck and hugs his arms to kind of like clasp them and force force them into dropping the ball. It's a mm. brilliant turnover by Simon Shaw. And like just when it counted, just as Australia got quick ball and again compounds another Gregan knock-on. He makes two in a row as well. Where there's one oh, there's one really bad one as well where Gregan knocks the ball on, England dive on it, and out of sheer just frustration and just annoyance at himself, uh, Gregan then just goes and handles in the ruck and tries to win it back. Yeah. And oh. gets penalised for it. And it's just appalling. Yeah. However, Australia, as they start to string things together, do get two good passages of attack. Yeah. And one of them, as we got into 77 minutes, gets them up into the English half. They get out into the corner. And who should step up but Joe Worsley? Fresh onto the field. He's been on for about five, about 10 minutes at this point. And he just dives over the ruck. Really simple penalty Alan Rowland sticks his arm out gives a penalty and Australia are given the most difficult choice imaginable 
Yeah. They've got Sterling Mortlock, who has a 50-meter-odd boot. But the penalty is in the corner. It's like on the 5-meter. I'd say right, about 45 meters out? 48 meters on 48. the screen, yeah. So 48 meters on the angle, like in the corner. One of the most difficult gettable shots in rugby. The absolute stones on Sterling Mortlock to step up and take this kick. Yeah. What would you have done in the situation? I think I'd have backed Mortlock. I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. If I think I it's captain, so easy the, with hindsight well, to say no, but I think I would have backed Mortlock. The problem here is Sterling Mortlock was captain, right? That's true. I think if someone else is captain who isn't the goal kicker, they don't do that. They don't take that shot. I would have. point. If, if Gitto was the captain instead, let's say. Yeah. As somebody else who's been in that scenario. Or George Smith. George Smith. Captain, yeah. Stephen I, Moore, who captains them later. I think I would have gone up to Mortlock and said, like, do you think you're going to get this? Yes. Whereas instead he's having that conversation with himself, yes. which you're right, does slightly change it. That's such a difficult conversation to have as well, because you've got to weigh up the fact that you might miss it. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you're the goal kicker, purely the goal kicker, all you're thinking about is, I'm going to get this. This is yeah. in my range. Right. If you're the captain, you're thinking about, well, if I don't get this and it was a mistake, I look like a twat. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, exactly. It's such a difficult. He's got decision. the pressure of the team. And not on Australia. It. Yeah, but Sterling Mollock, he's taking responsibility for the full team on himself here in yeah. two different ways. And bloody hell, it's a great kick he puts in, Yeah, by the way. I would have gone for the corner and tried to set up a drop goal with Dill immediately. Yeah. Um, we yeah. saw as we record this yesterday, but, you know, in the last couple of days, the Ospreys Ulster, right? Where they ran the simplest drop goal drill imaginable, the Ospreys, <laughs> where they just chucked it to the centre in the middle, the 12, and then immediately back to the 10 who kicked the drop goal. Yeah. Literally run that. Run the yeah. simplest drop goal drill anyone's ever seen off, you know, ball at the front. But like, I would have, I would have gone to the corner of the express decision of wanting a drop goal drill. The, the, but, the thing then is, you've got to win the line out then. Sure, you know? sure. And but, yeah, literally, Simon Shaw, there's a possibility <laughs> that he steals the line out and everyone's going, why did they not take the three? There's but, no right or wrong answer. Is I the long and short back of it. securing a line out on the 22 over nailing a shot at goal from 48 meters in the which corner, which is valid, which is valid. But yeah, there's not necessarily a right and wrong here. I guess there is a wrong because the kick didn't go through the posts. Yeah, but it gives it a bloody good go. He sends it miles. It's so close for what a difficult kick it is. Yeah, but yeah, it, he originally hits it, it to the right and it curls round yeah. and goes off to the left. He clearly hits it with a curve. And the yeah. curves too much round because he's trying to accommodate for the wind. The fact this is an open air stadium, so the wind really gets to him. Didn't have the yeah. roof that it has nowadays. And then, yeah, he's putting everything into it because it is the most difficult, the longest range kick imaginable. So it would have just been really satisfying to be Australia and beat England for a last minute drop goal. Yes, it really would have. It really would. Oh, that would have been so poetic if so. However, there's um, a short back and forth, as you say. We've got maybe two minutes left here. There's a turnover. Well, that Australia get yeah what a minute and a half maybe left to go yeah yeah thereabouts it's on 78 minutes and Gregan hits in field and as Barnes is setting up the attack he notices on the short side the forwards have just gone and positioned themselves into like the sort of shit the All Blacks were running last year where they were positioning like a free pod on the width so that they could like you know split and do hands down there yeah and Adam Fryer takes it on the short side he draws his man Pops it to Al Baxter with nobody covering him on the touchline. Baxter gets on the outside, makes about 10 meters, and sees Jason Robinson and I think Wilkinson's covering as well in front of him. Yeah. And in Al Baxter, right? Al Baxter, the tight end prop, Australian who's the bench. prop 
Yeah, the 31-year-old Australian replacement prop looks at Jason Robinson, looks at his options, and goes, well, I could just take contact and try and set a position. Or I can try and take Jason Robinson on the outside when I've got one metre to... Less than one metre. I've got like two inches to work in. There are 30 seconds left of this World Cup quarterfinal. Yeah. And you know what? It's In, in true spirit of Vitboy, I fancy a crack here. <laughs> 79.21 on the clock. And he goes, I'm literally on the touchline. I'm going to try and take Jason Robinson on the non-existent outside. <laughs> and so he steps into touch. And Robinson just has to like give him the smallest shove and he's over the line and out. And Robinson's the... kind of like, oh, I, d- I didn't think he'd do that. Yeah, you know what? I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, Instead I, of know. cutting it in. And yeah, he's j- he just asked to get put into touch there by Robinson. It's so stupid. And suddenly Australia have gone from having a good attack where they're completely on top. They've got all the momentum. They're going forward and they're getting up to probably around the 22. Instead, England have got a line out and 15 seconds to run down. And they took it straight to Corey, who catches it cleanly, brings it down and in the process somehow loses the ball. Yeah. And you think, oh God, Australia, this is your third time that you've threatened to win this game in the last couple of minutes. And here you are. They send it in field. Matt Gitto makes a great carry on first phase just to get them moving forwards. Hugh McMenamin comes around the corner, puts in another brutal carry, and you go, they are on song here. They're set up to to, to do something. I yeah. don't know what. But at the same time, in this kind of five-second period, you think, does Berwick Barnes, Mortlock, or Latham have it in them to knock over a drop goal? And yet, and then... Who else but George Gregan finds himself kind of at the heart of a confusion in the middle of the field? Yeah. So Gregan ends up kind of rucking over and Matt Dunning comes in at scrum off and flaps at the ball with his hand and sends it forward. And sure enough, as day follows night, Alan Roland blows up and then he says full time these remains of him exploded. No, so Holland blows for full time and England lose it in celebration. Mate, I love this. I was so happy for England at the final whistle here because they are so clearly out in their feet. Uh, Gomasol's in tears at the final whistle. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Fair play to him. He's putting a brilliant shift. And rightfully, they are absolutely delighted. Like, yeah. They're all jumping up and down, like hugging each other. It's just, I think... They clearly believe that they could do this, but I don't necessarily think that they knew that they would. Yeah. And you can see that they they realise this is an overachievement here, in a good way. Yeah. Well, Simon Shaw said afterwards, he felt like England in particular, but rugby teams in general, had sort of lost the ability to really enjoy victories. Mm. He said it was something he was very big on in the last few stages. We, let's get the job done, then let's enjoy it and let's celebrate this. Yeah. He said, as he said, at least dwell on it in the moment for a bit. Otherwise, what the hell is the point? Yeah, damn right. And yeah, it's great. The English yeah. celebrations are fantastic. The fans are absolutely loving it. And yeah, the, the players out on the pitch are sparing no emotion. And it, I don't know, man, it's just, it makes games like this so much more worth watching. Because yeah. as you say, if you're going to win one of the biggest games of your life and not absolutely love it and lap it up, then there's no point in sport because it's a fundamentally emotional thing. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. That was exactly what Phil Vickery said in the full-time whistle. That sport throws up funny things, doesn't it? 
Yeah. It's the funny thing about sport. And sometimes you can have a team that isn't rated at all can do that. I was delighted for England, genuinely. The fact that they, you know, after being written off and genuinely written off this time as being like such a poor team, they delivered such a brilliant performance that was just extremely, I want to say clinical. I think in terms of point scoring, it wasn't. But in terms of how they played, in terms of executing a very specific game plan, it was. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely left nothing out there. And afterwards, you can see George Gregan in the huddle talking to the Australians and saying, four more years, boys, for you and not for me, because I'm fucking off to Japan. On the balance of the five games they've played, I think Australia would deserve to win the World Cup. I don't think there's a way in hell you can say Australia would deserve to win that game. Yeah, exactly that. England, by far the better team. Yeah. They looked just so much more composed in the big moments of the game that all landed on England's side. Other than yeah. the Tinkuri try, that is the only big moment that fell in Australia's favour. Yeah. I think if this had been Ireland or Scotland or Italy or France or a lot of other teams that put it all together for one big game in the quarterfinal after being dog shit, everyone would celebrate and remember this game. Yeah. But instead, because it's England, people like to dogpile on them. Yeah. And I think it's something rugby needs to kind of outgrow a bit is this unnecessary hate of England because it's fine in football because you've got lots of villains in football yeah. and England are one of a big, you know, slew of villains. You've got, you know, Germany, you've got bloody, some can argue that Brazil's and Spain's and teams that, you know, had periods of dominating it. And in England, just another one where people, and it's funnier and it's a different thing. Yeah. It kind of, when, and again, like we just had this World Rugby report on, you know, abuse in the Rugby World Cup and how most of it is directed towards England because England are pantomime villain. And actually, you've got to look at the effect that has on coaches, players, and also fans. You yeah. know, mental health people are getting abused and shout out that for being English fans. And also, if I think it's we just friendly banter, to... then sure. But you've that's got to one thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that line is knowing when to give them credit. Yeah. And I don't think England teams get credit for great wins unless they're completely dominant yeah you know and, and this was a fantastic win it wasn't the all Blacks game in 2019 it wasn't one of the games that they gone and beaten scotland by 60 points or whatever i think they deserve enormous credit for this and yet in the kind of popular rugby consciousness this england team is only remembered for being lucky yeah and actually that was, was brilliant for this game at least i was talking about this the other day that i think People were so critical of England in the 2023 World Cup saying they were playing shit. And in the couple mm. of games since then, that the, they have won, right? And I'm yeah. so reluctant to criticise them because people were doing that to Wales in 2019. Exactly. And exactly. the surrounding areas of that, people were saying like, oh, no, they're shit. They're, you know, just getting lucky, having lucky refereeing decisions and stuff. And it's like, well, no, they know how to win games. And yeah. the current England team clearly do. And it doesn't matter if it looks pretty in the 80 minutes. Yeah. And it's the same thing with this game here, the 2007 quarterfinal. I think this is the sort of performance that completely galvanises the squad. It suddenly, genuinely yeah. does not matter how shit you've been in the previous four games because you've won the big one that matters and you've played brilliantly. And at that point, you do want to work for each other. Yeah. You are much tighter as a group and you are much more, you're tenfold more likely to win the World Cup off a performance like that. In fact, even maybe more so if you played shit in the group stages. Yeah. But you've shown that you have the level of resilience to come through the other side of that. It's an absolutely brilliant England performance. I'm delighted for them. What happened for England against Argentina in 2023? Yeah. You know, like against Argentina, they suddenly put it all together and they weren't great, but they found a way to dominate that game. Yeah. Through kind of alternate tactics. Yeah. And it was phenomenal. It was amazing. And it kind of took them apart and it really galvanised that team. And 
I don't think it would have hit the highs they did in terms of getting third in the world and almost beating South Africa and almost making the final, getting so close. I yeah. don't think that would have happened if they hadn't been so shit in the warm-ups. Yeah. I think they kind of had to ride through that and come through the other side. And again, I've always felt this of all the great teams in rugby went through adversity or with the Auckland's who have had yeah. that kind of winning culture for literally hundreds of years. And they're building on building on building on that. And I think it was a big part of why I felt like Ireland weren't going to win the World Cup. I felt like they didn't have that kind of adversity. They kind of just built slowly. And then, you know, they lost one game where they were battered by New Zealand. And they kind of went, oh, that was annoying. And I think now, after last year's World Cup, they've kind of had the hurt and pain that they needed in mm. order to rebuild from there. Same and with now France. I think, yeah. I think France, though, had had 10 years of being shit, which could have driven them on. But I also, I also don't argue with... Like these specific players have now had that? Exactly, exactly. The, and, they made they made it as far as a pretty mid French team that had yeah. Sebastian Valmahina punch them out of the World Cup. Like, like they got just as far as that with one of the best teams they've yeah. ever had. People talk about Saracens, right, as a complete dominant force in English rugby. The start of this kind of dynasty, they lost two Premiership finals in a row. Yeah, you know, one in the last minute, they kicked the penalty they thought was going to win in the seventy ninth minute, and Dan Hipkiss on the bench and not getting on here scores the winning try in overtime. You know, you then they then lost the following year, and like that sort of thing builds a squad and builds a squad up. You know, Definitely. being mid table, struggling for a while, uh, or a really heartbreaking quarter or semi final, turned you into something. The ninety nine World Cup builds the two thousand and three World Cup for England. Yeah. You know, the two thousand seven World Cup builds the twenty eleven twenty fifteen World Cups for the All Blacks. Yeah, it's always the way. The bloody losing by fifty to the All Blacks builds that Springboks team into the team we've now got here. Yeah, and. Yeah, I don't know. I I think this England team really, really rode that well without actually having yeah. to lose many games. I was expecting I'd come in, in microcosm. I was expecting I'd come in and say like, "Oh, England are really lucky here," but actually, yeah, yeah they really deserve that. I've they not got a bad word to say about the way they played in this game. So they're yeah. the better team. They're the better yeah. team. And again, like reading their reflections on this years down the line, Paul Saki saying it's the best game we've played in this quarterfinal. He loved it. You know, he did mentally. I think Australia were gone, and they just kind of got into them. And yeah, like Joe Worsley, so up for it. Wilkinson's talked about really enjoying this game. Uh, Worsley just say him giving away the penalty. He says, I would have thought about that for years and years, probably forever, if they hadn't missed it. Yeah, um, fair. But the, the really fun stuff when they talk about this later, right? When they talked about this in 2023, was Joe Worsley discussed the night out they had afterwards. Oh, yes. Hit me. So this game was in the day. Then that evening was the France-New Zealand game, obviously played in Cardiff, despite the World Cup being in France. And Worsley said, the evening was incredible. We were in Marseille Harbour on somebody's boat. <laughs> there were half a million French fans watching the quarterfinal against New Zealand. It was just a wonderful weekend of rugby. One of those memorable days. Oh, that's great. So they watched it on, they watched that quarterfinal then on a boat surrounded by French fans, all of them drinking heavily. That would have been surreal. Yep. He says, then at the end of the night, we got a lift home from the police to our hotels. There were no taxis running because it's bloody Marseille and they'll probably, you know, all crimed to death. I was going to say, there's there's surely very heavily staffed on police in Marseille. This this is what they're doing. They're not reporting (laughs) any of the crimes or solving the actual crimes. They're off bloody giving rugby teams escorts. He said, (laughs) all cabs are bastards. (laughs) A cab. There were no taxis, but the police had one of those wagons they use for when there's a riot and they drove us home in it. My God. So they went home in a in a riot van. Simon Shaw then said, I think that's one of the ones that stands out from the World Cup. Each time we got one step closer, we re- and we really enjoyed it. 
He said, I didn't get a lift back to the hotel in the police wagon, though. I acquired an abandoned moped. No. kept for the duration of the World Cup. No way. So Simon Shaw stole a moped and just kept it for the rest of the World <laughs> Cup and just rode it around Marseille for a while. You wouldn't argue. No. What a hero. Good old Simon what Shaw. What a hero. So, should we do Man of the Match, Dick of the Day? Let's do it. Should we start with Man of the Match? Yeah, let's. I've got a few written down. I think Andrew Sheridan was fantastic. I think yeah, we've not really spoken too much about him. Was he? Okay. Yeah. Um, not surprised there. I think he was excellent. Great carrying, great scrummaging. Johnny Wilkinson, we can't avoid. I think yeah. he was brilliant. He was the, the heartbeat of this England team. And frankly, they do, they might not win this game without him. You know, well, certainly they've got Johnny. Yeah. Uh, they've got Ollie Barkley playing. They don't win this. But you know, Johnny Wilkinson is essential to them winning this game. But there's two names that are the main front runners for me. One of them's Mike Cat. I think this is a great game by him. His kicking game was fantastic. Defensively, really solid. Carried the ball well. But man of the match for me has to go to Phil Vickery. Uh, the platform he left at scrum time and around the park with his leadership was second to none. He was exactly the player England needed. All the big moments surround him and the scrum until obviously he goes off when he's given everything he has. He's absolutely spent by the end. Uh, so yeah, man of the match for me is Phil Vickery. Got to give the front row Ooh. some love. I like that. I really like that. And I think that's very deserved. For me, I think it's a two-horse race. I think there's a few players you mentioned as well who are very good. For me, man of the match is purely between Johnny Wilkinson and Simon Shaw. Oh, um, Shaw's he's a great shout as well. I thought Johnny Wilkinson, absolutely brilliant, is a large part of the reason why England won this game. Yeah, agreed. And I kind of had him pinned in for most of it, I think. But the sheer donkey work of Simon Shaw... The sheer work rate and effort, and he plays 80 minutes, you know, which isn't always common for a lock. Goes the full 80, gives absolutely everything he's got, and is everywhere, just everywhere. And in a game where England's strategy is to pick fights at rucks and do a lot of <laughs> lineouts, Simon Shaw is in his element. Yeah. And so I think for that reason, I am narrowly giving Simon Shaw my man of the match. Even Wilkinson was brilliant and so was Cat, but you can't give a man of the match to a back in a game like this, can you? Exactly, exactly. If it is, it's the 10, and only if he gets 100% of his kicking, and Wilkinson missed two. Fair call, fair call. Dick of the day then, for me, it could only be Stephen Moore for that kick, for picking it up, kicking it sideways, and almost costing his team a try in the first five, ten minutes of the biggest game of his life so far. It's got to be Stephen Moore for that kick. You say it can only be Stephen Moore, right? Yeah. I think there's three contenders. One, very much Stephen Moore. Another, Alan Roland, right? Did you watch the coin toss? Um, uh, yes, I think I did, but go on. So instead of doing the coin toss himself, Alan Roland oh, just gets this little... Like, he just gets this little kid. Yeah, he's just got like child labour, like child slave labour. Oh labor. my God, I know what you're about to give this for. Yes, go- carry on. Well, so Alan Roland just gives like child slave labour. Like, and I, I think if you're... A slave runner, then you are a dick of the day contender. Um, also, when he does that, the kid flips the coin and catches yeah. it. And Alan Roland is like patronizing him, saying, Yeah, and then you put it on your hand. Uh, yeah. You turn the yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the kid just, the, the kid knows that. The kid yeah. does that. The kid is doing I know it. That kids are normally stupid, but that kid was fine. And kids Alan are, Roland misjudged him. Kids are less stupid than Alan Roland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my dick of the day, right? And I can't believe this isn't who you went for. It's okay. Al Baxter. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, running into touch. 
Taking Jason Robinson on the outside. And yeah. The I'm thinking, I fancy this. I fancy beating one of the nippiest men to ever play rugby union and rugby league. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I think I can take him on the outside. I'm yeah, only twice call. his weight. Fair call. You know what? You are right. It is him. It's yep. not Stephen Moore. But also, I've I've made my decision now. So, Well, I think that brings us to a glorious end. It does. Thank you for uh, years, joining, joining me. <laughs> Four more years, boys. But only actually one more week for Whoa. next week, right? It's the big one. It's the great one. The 42nd game of the World Cup. The game is remembered for. One of the most famous games of all time. France 20, New Zealand 18. I am so excited for this. So before we do that, yeah. have you watched this game before in its entirety? I have, I have. I have, I have yes. as well, but I don't remember all of it that well and i'm very i'm really excited excited. i'm really excited this is one of the greats this is one of the games when when we started this podcast right if this had been to well-adjusted people they would have only done games like this next one yes well they watched that game back we've done like australia 37 canada 6 you know is there another game in this world cup in 2007 that we've already covered that would be on that list because like Um, in 87 it's just that semi-final between france and australia yeah, yeah. I mean, like the fi- all the finals kind of come up as you know, icon- instantly iconic moments. Uh, the opening game, Argentina beating France. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, and you can make an argument for oh, the first six yeah. nil game and South Africa Tonga as well, actually. But yeah, yeah. There's a few of them dotted around where there's like there are great. But this games, is like they, this is the would the, South the Africa Tonga be there though? Like it wasn't coming up when the BBC were doing all the all great matches stuff. That's it was entirely fault. games like this. It it truly is. Yeah, Brian Habana. But yeah, the point is, you're right. This is in the top percentile of most talked about rugby World Cup games of all time. Most it might be matches. the yeah, it might be the most talked about rugby game of all time. Yes, man of the match is going to be very interesting when we get. I there. can't wait to pick that. So, thank you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed that. Please join us again next week for France New Zealand, the big one dropping into your feeds of podcasts. We're doing these early in the week now instead of Fridays. It's sort of just become what we're doing. We may go back to Fridays. I'm not sure. I think we're looking at Tuesdays at the minute. Yeah, um, Six Nations but, on in it. So. Yeah, Six Nations. Everything's kind of funny, squiggly. I hope you're not squiggly. I hope you're lovely squidgy. and wonderful. Oh, yes. Rugby retrospective. Should I be called um, Squiggle Rugby? No. Thank you, squ- not Squiggle. Rugby um, League Squid. Thank you, Rugby League Squidge. Uh, thank you to Rugby Union Squidge Me. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week for the proper rugby. Sunny Bill. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 